So our church typically does what you would call expository preaching, which we think is biblical. The idea would be that you look at a passage, you would study that passage in depth, understand it in its historical and grammatical context um, through a process we call exegesis, which is taking the meaning out of a text, and then you would preach on that text to the congregation that they might understand the truths that are there and giving them understanding of the implications of that passage as well, or the applications. I'm not saying I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, what I am saying is I'm going to do something called topical preaching. Um, and we don't typically do this. I think there's time for it. I think it's, um, it's important in certain circumstances. The idea would be that you pick a topic and understand what the Bible has to say about that. Um, so, you know, if you were, you know, for instance, we've done this a few times at our church. Uh, one time, I remember Todd preached on idolatry. Uh, what does that look like in Scripture? Went to different passages on idolatry. Um, or we've looked at, I uh, did a really um, good series on evangelism, where we looked at what does the Bible say about evangelism. Um, so we're going to do something kind of like that today. And just so you know, um, my name is Matt, and I am the uh, family group leader for the Loma Linda family group. And I want to ask you guys for like a shout out. We don't have like a sign or anything. We don't, I promise. Um, but if you want to work on that, Trinity. Okay, and um, I'm also um, teaching in 116, which is our youth ministry. And we're actually going through a systematic theology right now, uh, so it's exciting. And um, what I'm going to be preaching on today, eventually we'll have some kind of a shorter message in 116, which touches on a lot of this stuff. Uh, so it's good practice for that. But I want to talk to you today about something that I don't feel like gets a lot of attention um, in Christian circles. And I don't fully understand why that is. I think it's because of our theological traditions that we're raised in that, um, you know, when you think about the fundamentalist movement and how it began, um, people were rightfully uh, condemning um, the social gospel, this idea that, you know, Jesus just wanted us to come and love each other and take care of each other and be nice to each other and not have any doctrinal content. Um, and that's not correct at all. We would say that it matters what you believe. There is truth. There is error. Um, there's a distinction between those things. And um, so what kind of happened is it's like one of those big pendulum swings where it's like, well, you know, we're going to go back to the truths of Scripture, the fundamentals, which is great. But sometimes, because of that, churches kind of forgot about the other stuff. We forgot to talk about, um, you know, serving people, taking care of people. We didn't talk about, um, you know, how to deal with uh, gender roles sometimes or um, racism issues, things like that that kind of got overlooked, you know. And it's, it's understandable. You're trying to get people back on track with the most basic things. And sometimes, you know, you forget to address those other things. And what happens? Well, people that are, you know, going to jobs, going to public school, going to public universities, they're going to get influenced by the world. And they're going to get told, you know, this is the way you think about gender roles. This is the way you think about race. This is the way you think about um, science or nature or economics or government. And, you know, we want to understand what the Bible says about these things. Today we're going to look at one particular. And um, if you want a sermon title for this instead of sermon notes, um, you can put in that the title of this is making it up right now. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> the title is we're going to look at a theology of nature. Okay. We're going to look at a theology of, or you could even call it a theology of um, 
maybe ecology or something like that, but we're going to look at a theology of nature. What does the Bible have to say about nature? And there's a reason I said a theology of nature instead of a theology of creation. And that's because whenever you say creation, people are automatically like, yeah, let's talk about creation evolution. Like, we're going to do that this weekend. That's exciting. You know, let's debate. Um, and I, I want you to understand, we're going to touch on that. But, you know, the created world didn't stop existing after creation happened. You know, it's not like the Bible talks about, oh, yeah, God made all the animals and stuff. And then there's a flood. And, okay, let's talk about Jesus. You know, well, actually, the Bible keeps talking about the created world all throughout the rest of Scripture. And we want to understand what are God's views on the created world? What are, what are God's views of his own creation? What does he think about them? Um, there's not really a theological subdiscipline for this. Um, I remember when Jessica and I were at Word of Life, and um, they had us, uh, I'm trying to remember how, what the assignment was. It was something like you had to create a list of theological subdisciplines. Like you were to take systematic theology and break it apart into components. You know, so you're like, okay, well, there's, you know, we need to talk about the Bible. That would be bibliology. We need to talk about Jesus. That would be Christology. Um, we need to talk about the Holy Spirit. That would be pneumatology. And both of us independently were like, well, you know, we talk about people, which are created by God. We talk about angels, which are created by God. What about the other stuff God made? Why don't we ever talk about that? And I think what's happened is the church has kind of just said, well, that's science's domain. We'll, we'll leave them. They can have fun with that. They can play with their little chemicals and you know, watch the planets and all that stuff. We're, we're going to focus on what's spiritual. But maybe we've created a dichotomy, which isn't helpful. You know, maybe we've separated out some things that, in reality, the Bible actually has a lot to say about this. So that's what I want to look at today. And my, my thesis, or maybe a so that statement, I'm going to say we need a theocentric, not an anthropocentric view of nature. Um, we need a theocentric, not an anthropocentric view of nature. Um, so those are some unusual words that you don't typically use. Um, I can't imagine you do. It's not like you're sitting around eating your cereal in the morning. Like, let's talk about theocentrism. Um, you know, so I'll give you definitions for those in a minute, which that minute looks like it's going to be right now because I just looked at my notes. So <laughs> let's talk about that. I said anthropocentric. What is anthropocentric? Well, anthropos, that's the Greek word for man. Okay, centric, right? Centered, you think about something that's centric, centered. You know, so we talk about it's man-centered, okay? So anthropocentrism would be man-centeredness. Um, so how can you have a man-centered view of nature? Well, I would suggest to you that most people kind of naturally have a man-centered view of nature. Um, and I think we can see that pretty clearly because, um, you know, when, when we need something, we take it. Like, we're humans. We do what we want, you know? And that's, that's kind of how we run things. Um, and we don't just do that with nature. I mean, you look at... Um, when governments or economical, economical, economic systems are unchecked, um, you know, people kind of go wild and crazy. I mean, you end up with like child labor, you end up with, um, you know, people being robbed of their wages. Um, and the other extreme is true too. You don't get dictatorships, you get, um, you know, communism hasn't turned out well for any country that's tried that. Um, but we see the same thing with nature. Sometimes we think that God, uh, we might correctly recognize that God created everything but then we think, well, he made it just simply for us, um, us to use. And that's how you end up with um, a lot of kind of the tragedies that have happened in um, what you might call ecology or environmentalism. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard of the Cuyahoga River, um, which is in Ohio. Um, that was, as far as I know, it's the only river to have ever caught fire, um, which doesn't sound like 
the words I put together should work. But yeah, actually, um, people were coal mining there, and they weren't controlling what went into the river afterwards. And so there was so much coal dust and all this other stuff in the river that the river actually caught fire. And it was like a danger to human you know, safety in the whole area. And um, afterwards, they had to regulate it and say, like, look, you can't just dump all this stuff in the river. Like, we can't have rivers catching fire. That's not OK, you know? Um, and so what happens is that people kind of think of things as like, well, things matter as they relate to me. And essentially, that's selfishness. Um, now, you might not be selfish intentionally. You might just be trying to understand things. You know, but as we think about it, um, God didn't create things for us. He created them for him. Okay, And he did create things for our use, and we'll get into that in a second. But ultimately, everything is about him. Right? That's what we talk about. We say, what is the, the chief end of man? Somebody tell me. Glorify God, right? What would the chief end of creation be, all of creation? Be to glorify God. That's what it's there for, ultimately. And like I said, we'll talk about what that means. Well, let me give you two more definitions. Our next one is biocentric, okay? So what is that? Well, it's life-centered. Okay, we're not just talking about any life. The idea would be like the living world, all right? And so this is where you would, I mean, these are your tree huggers, okay? This is environmentalism at its like craziest. Um, you know, this is people that they're going out there, they're saying we're one with nature, you know, it's some kind of cosmic force that's flowing through things. It's uh, might be pantheism of some kind where you'd say, you know, everything is a god, everything, you know, the tree is just as much as a god as I am. Um, now, that's obviously not taught in scripture. That's, you know, 100% wrong. That's not okay. Um, we would not in any way justify such an opinion. Um, and, you know, Romans talks about that, says that people would trade the, um, the image of God for an image of corruptible things, right? And he says um, man and four-footed beasts and birds and reptiles. Um, and people do that. And people do exchange um, the glory of God for those things. And what happens is instead of recognizing that those things exist to glorify God, they take God's glory and they make it about those things. So they're just like, wow, aren't lions really cool? End of statement. That's it. You know. Now, what we should say is, well, lions are really cool. Doesn't that reflect our amazing creator? You know? And so there's, a, there's an aspect that goes to the glory of God there. Instead, those things are just being glorified. And a lot of times, biocentrism ends up being about anthropocentrism in the end. You know, it's like we glorify ourselves by recognizing that we were so wrong to elevate ourselves. And so what you end up doing is kind of like a, you pretend to lower yourself, but you're actually still elevating yourself because you're still getting the focus on you. I am part of creation. I am, you know, an animal just like the other animals. I can do what I want. And so it still ends up being about the person. Um, so I would suggest you both these views are wrong. What we need is a theocentric view. This is a God-centered view. Um, how does everything God made relate to God? Okay, that's what we're interested in, understanding that. And um, Francis Schaeffer wrote a really useful book. If you want a fun one to read, I found this at like a yard sale or something. It wasn't this yard sale. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have had time to read it, no. Um, it's called Pollution and the Death of Man, the Christian View of Ecology. Um, and he wrote this book as a response to this person who wrote an essay um, saying that the reason we're in the ecological situation we are right now, the reason that um, we need to, you know, the environment has been destroyed, there's deforestation, all that stuff, they say the reason for that is actually Christianity. Um, and they say that because Christians teach this idea that we have mastery over nature, then people have been able to do whatever they want. And so he wanted to write a response to that, you know. Like, I think we need to do that when somebody challenges saying our, our belief system is what's wrong with the world. I think, you know, we should give a response to that. But what's interesting is he doesn't actually say, hey, you're wrong. He says, well, 
maybe you're sort of right. I would say Christian theology does not teach us to do that, but have people misused Christian theology to do what they want? Yeah, they probably have. And so um, it's a really good book. Um, just to quote him here, he says, the value of the things, meaning the things that are created, is not in themselves autonomously, but that God made them, and thus they deserve to be treated with high respect. So what is the value of something? It's the value that God has given it. Okay, it's the value of God himself. So when we look at a person or an object, we're supposed to recognize that the value that's in that comes from God. Okay, if you were to go out in secular settings, you know, you ask people like, why are people worth something? Like, why can't I just go kill people? You know, people come up with all kinds of reasons for that. They would say, oh, well, you know, um, all people have worth. All people have value. Well, why? Well, you know, you want to be treated the way you want to be treated, so you should treat other people the same way. Um, you kind of get that philosophy. Maybe you get one that's, well, we're all part of the creation, and so you know, we need to work together to survive, and so we need to treat each other well. Maybe you get a society view, which is like um, kind of a, a very um, Athenian-type view that, oh, well, we need to treat each other well because we need to build up our society together and, and increasing culture and understanding, and, and if we treat each other poorly, then we can't accomplish that goal. Um, but none of those are very satisfactory answers, right? Why should we love each other? Why should we treat each other well? We should do it because we're created in the image of God. Because when you harm someone else, you are harming the image of God. Now, other things, as we'll talk about in a little bit, are not created in the image of God, but they are created by God. And so as a result, we have to think about the way we interact with those things as well, as those are creations of God. So I'm going to kind of give you two major um, questions and then we're going to look at points within those questions. Okay, so our first question is, what is God's relationship with nature? What is God's relationship with nature, with the creation? Okay, and this is where we're going to start getting into scripture. I know you're worried, like, is he ever going to open the Bible? Um, yeah, I will, don't worry. Um, and the first thing we think about God's relationship with nature, so, so point one under that question, would be, well, God created it, right? I mean, we just go to the first page of the Bible, unless you've got one that's got like abbreviations and stuff, or I don't know, table of contents. Go to the first page of the actual Bible, Genesis chapter one, read the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, that's the first thing in the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. God made all these things that we see around us. I'm not going to take the time to read the rest of Genesis 1. You can. And Genesis 2 as well talks about God's creative work, what he did. So there's not much else you can add to this point. What is God's relationship with nature? He made it. Without him, there is no nature. Without him, there is no creation. We wouldn't exist. Nothing would exist without God. So there's something to think about there. God made things. He didn't have to. He wanted to. Um, why did he want to? Well, for his glory. What does that mean? I don't know. I can't give you a beyond that. I'm not exactly sure what, you know, what God had in mind when he made trees or lobsters or whatever, you know, but he did it. Um, he did it for his glory. And what I said before, I think is true that a lot of people kind of just stop there. They're like, how does God relate to nature? Well, he made it. Well, you know what? The Bible actually says some other stuff too. So even though that was a really short point, I want to keep going, and our points are going to get longer. Number two, it brings God glory. So number one was that God created it. Number two is that it brings God glory. And we're going to look at Psalm 104. 
And we're going to spend some time here. And we're going to read a big chunk of it. So stick with me. Follow along in your Bibles. Remember, what we're looking for here is what is God's relationship with the created world, with his creation? How does he interact with it? Okay, I'm going to start in verse 1. Follow along with me. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with the garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. I want to make a clear distinction here. Earlier on, those first two stanzas, I'll that way, we read those. It's talking about God's creative work and possibly the flood later on. Um, and God's interaction with earth. And like I said, that's kind of where we stop thinking. But look at where he goes from here. We're talking about he sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. Um, this is a current thing. This isn't something happening in the past. Verse 11, they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nests, and the stork whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the cliffs are a refuge for the shephanim, which are um, conies, the hyrax animals. He made the moon for the seasons, the sun knows the place of its setting, you appoint darkness and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God and lie down in their dens. Oh, when the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. I'm going to stop here for a second. Um, think about how God is portrayed in the psalm. It's not just that he made everything. He's actively involved with it. You know, and... Um, I'm taking a class right now called Contemporary Christian Theology, and it's from an Adventist perspective, so I'll let you know how that goes by the end. Um, but it's interesting. We had a good discussion about um, kind of the interaction between uh, science and the Bible and things like that. And they're talking about Galileo, you know, and how the church misinterpreted, or, you know, misinterpreted science and punished Galileo for it. And you kind of hear that all the time from, from atheist perspectives, too. Um, but one thing that we, you know, I kind of brought up in the class is, well, just because something isn't supernatural doesn't mean God isn't involved, okay? Um, God created the natural things that are around us, and God works through natural means. And I want you to look here. The lions seek their food from God. Does that mean the lions pray every morning? They get down in their dens, and they're like, God, give me some food today, and then God throws them, a, you know, an antelope? I don't think that's what's going on. I've seen enough National Geographic documentaries to know that's not what's going on. 
he causes the grass to grow for the cattle? I thought that was photosynthesis. I thought that was plants taking in nutrients and, you know, doing all the kind of stuff that plants do. I, don't, I haven't taken botany. I don't know. Um, he sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. I thought we had the water cycle to explain that. Isn't it like water evaporates and goes into clouds and then precipitates and, you know, goes in the ocean eventually? Isn't that how it works? Well, yeah. But just because you can explain something through a natural means doesn't mean God is not involved. The problem that we have created for ourselves is we get this God of the gaps mentality. And it's kind of left over from the Middle Ages. How do the planets move? Oh, God moves them. Well, we found out how the planets moved. Oh, I guess God doesn't move them. Oops. Okay, God does something else. God, God, um, God keeps them in motion. Well, no, that's gravity. Oh, well, okay. Um, well, maybe God just made them, and he set it going, and he doesn't do anything anymore. Well, that's deism. That's where deism came from, right? That's not what we believe. That's not what scripture teaches, and I think you can see that pretty clearly here. God is intimately involved with creation, with current nature. I want you to keep reading. Verse 24, Oh, Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. There are the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you have formed a sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Yeah, um, this psalmist definitely believes God is involved with creation currently. I mean, you look at that. You... You give it to them. You open your hand, and the animals eat from it. It's kind of the idea. It's like a petting zoo. Now, does it actually look like that? No. God works through these natural means that he's provided. God uses the things that he does, that he's created. He's designed a very intricate system. But just because he designed the system doesn't mean he doesn't want any part of it. He wants to be in it. He's involved with it. He's helping it. He's going, making things go forward. And what's amazing through all this is look how the psalmist ends this. He's going through this, this account of God's creation, and all he can say by the end is just, you know, let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Like, that's what he's impressed with, is just, wow, God made all this stuff. God works all this stuff. God does all this stuff. It's incredible. He's amazed. He's astounded by what he sees around him. It glorifies God. And nature is God's masterpiece in one way. Now, you could say people, but people are part of nature. I'm including them right now. Okay. So God's creation is God's masterpiece. It shows his genius, right? We look at things and we're amazed. We're astounded. That's the idea. You're supposed to look at it and be like, wow. But if you don't have the theocentric view, you just look at it and you say, wow, that's cool. Yay. That's it. That's all you can do. But we can look at it and we can say, wow, that's cool. God. We can add that extra part to it because that's how it's intended to be. We see here that individual organisms are bringing him glory, right? The lions and what they do are bringing him glory. The stork and its nest. We also see the ecosystems are bringing him glory. The way things work together. The fact that the stream flows down and gives water to the animals and gives water to the, you know, the, um, the people and allows them to grow food. All those things working together brings God glory. 
And even the non-living things are described as bringing him glory. The mountains, right? When he touches the mountain and it smokes, that brings him glory. And what that means, and what you see here, is that all of it belongs to him. I mean, that's pretty clear in this passage. Like, this is his stuff. He's the one that made it, and he's the one that's sustaining it. He's the one that's in control. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that not only are we part of his control, right? God is sovereign over us, just like he's sovereign over butterflies and volcanoes. But that means that we are his stewards on earth. When we use his water, we're responsible for that, just like when he gives us money and we're responsible for it, just like when he gives us children and we're responsible for it, right? You might say, well, you know, are the giraffes responsible? Well, I don't, you know, no. Like, they don't know what's going on. They're just drinking. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. And when they do what they're supposed to do, they glorify God, you know? But we, however, are created in the image of God, and so we have responsibility. And you know what? Going along, still in the same thing that it brings God glory, it bears witness of him. All right, if we flip over to Psalm 19, and this is one you typically think about as we talk about the idea of general revelation, right? That nature declares the glory of God. We say that because that's exactly what David says in Psalm 19 in verse 1. If you look at it, it says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. It's very straightforward. I could have gone to this one first, but I wanted to introduce you to Psalm 104 because I think it's really cool. Um, this one's cool too, obviously. I'm not putting one scripture above another. It's just that we see Psalm 19 a lot. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. And them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And then he transitions and talks about the law of the Lord, and talks about both of them bringing glory to God. But of course, I'm highlighting the one, because we don't have time to talk about the law of the Lord, although that would be an interesting study. But we're looking here that the heavens declare the glory of God. We saw in Psalm 104 kind of the things we see around us, the lions, the volcanoes, all that stuff, they declare the glory of God. So do the heavens. We'll talk about the sun there. And kind of our, our key passage we tend to go to on this as it relates especially to people is Romans 1. And Romans 1, 19 through 20, I can read it. You can turn there if you want, but it's pretty short, so you can listen too. Romans 1, 19 through 20, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Who's the they there? Well, he's talking about all people, ever, just people. Um, he kind of begins his argument in Romans, talking about the whole of the world. He moves on to Jewish people. You know, he talks about Gentiles as well. Um, but here he's just talking about everybody. You can read just before this. You want to read verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. It's with, evident within even the unbelievers. Even the unrighteous know this. Um, now, does that mean that we need to say that they're all liars when they say that God doesn't exist? Well, no, I don't think that's particularly helpful because they're like, well, I'm not a lying person. Like, you know, 
the IRS isn't on my case. I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, but I think it's important that we recognize that that's a theological reality. It's a truth we know from Scripture, but they don't recognize it right now. Some of them do. If you talk to some of them, they'll say, oh, yeah, at one point I believed in God and I rejected it. But a lot of, the, a lot of atheists you meet, they're just going to say, no, I've never believed in God. And I think they genuinely believe that or they've genuinely convinced themselves of it. Maybe it's the right way to say it. Um, but we know theologically, scripturally, we know that deep down they do know God exists. And so we want to be in the work of demonstrating that to them. That's what I think part of the role of a, of a scientist who's a Christian is. I always have trouble saying that because if you say Christian scientist, it's so frustrating. Why did they take that term? Okay. Anyway, back to what we're talking about. I want you to really notice verse 20 here is interesting. The creation, since the creation of the world, so of all time, ever since things have existed, God's invisible attributes, specifically we're talking about his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so they're without excuse. And you might say, I don't know about that. Like, and how do you see invisible qualities? Well, they're invisible, okay? You know, you're not looking for like skywriting, like a plane dragging one of those things. Um, what you're looking for is God's handiwork, right? That's what the psalmist in Psalm 104 was just talking about. He looks around him and he can't help but see God. He sees God everywhere. He sees God in controlling all these things and doing all these things. You know, when you think about even the most fundamental things in the galaxy, in the universe, gravity, right? And how does gravity work? Nobody knows how gravity works. It's crazy. But it holds everything together. And it works super well. And it's totally unpredictable the way you think it would work. And you're seeing God's handiwork there. His eternal power. God made that system. He's thinking through these things. He knew these things. And he made these things. So we see that it brings God glory. Looking over these points again. What is God's relationship with nature? God made it. He created it. He brings God glory. That's point two. It brings God glory. Excuse me. And number three, God sustains and cares for nature for creation, okay? Um, the passage you typically think about when you think of the idea that he sustains and cares for nature is Colossians 1. It's a passage I always think of. Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17, if you want to write that down. It says, For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. By the way, the him here is Jesus. If you read earlier on, he's talking specifically about Jesus. Jesus created the world. Um, and I should say God the Son created the world. I don't want to cause confusion here. And then he says in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay, this is we talk about God sustaining things. Without God, things would fall apart. Right? God is actively sustaining them. How? Well, I suspect by the laws of nature. In fact, you know, what is a law of nature? You know, can you really pinpoint what a law of nature is? Well, it's possible that that's just a manifestation of God's sustainability. You know, it's, it's not um, necessarily a thing. That could just be the way in which God runs the universe. I don't want to say that with great certainty because we can always discover more fundamental things in the law of nature. But what we do know is that God uses those laws, created those laws to control and sustain things. But I want to highlight a passage that maybe you're not, you don't connect with the idea of God sustaining things. We don't connect with God's concern for his creation. And um, this one really took me by surprise. Somebody pointed it out to me one time, and I was like, what? I don't remember that. And then I went back and read it, and I said, oh, wow. 
I don't know how I've read this passage so many times that I've never noticed this before. Why don't you go to Genesis chapter 9. In 116, which is our youth ministry, especially when we're doing a Bible survey, we always did this timeline thing. I was, um, the idea was that we put this timeline up on the board of biblical history so that we've got reference points as we're thinking. Um, and we're telling different accounts that are in scripture. We're trying to reference different events. We wanted the students to understand where those things fit in. Okay? And we talked about covenants that God had made with people, covenant with Abraham, covenant with David. Um, and I always had to cringe when I made the covenant with Noah because I don't actually think it's a covenant with Noah. I think he's a part of it, okay? But I want you to check this out. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to have to skip ahead a little bit. Um, just so, some context. There was the flood. They're on the ark. They get off the ark, which is Noah and his family and those animals that were on there, okay? Now look at verse 8 of chapter 9. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you. So it's a covenant. And with your descendants after you. Okay, so it's with Noah and his descendants, right? We got that. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. Okay, well, you know, maybe he's just exaggerating a little bit. He's just, you know, being a little poetic or something. Let's keep reading. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Well, he said that about seven times, I think. I, I didn't actually count it. It could be a little less than that, five, five to seven, somewhere in there. But he points out, this is a covenant between me and you and your descendants and all the animals, and at one point he even says the whole earth, Okay. Um, now, are the grasshoppers looking up at the rainbow and be like, yes, God's not going to flood the earth again. I remember that this has been passed down for the millions of generations of grasshoppers we've had because we breed all the time. No, I don't think that's happening, okay? I think that we're the only ones that can understand it because if you, th if you notice here, he says, me and you. God's talking to Noah. He's not talking to the grasshoppers, okay? He's talking to Noah, but he says, hey, Noah, this covenant I'm making is not just with you, but it's with everything around here. Because the flood was a global event. The flood was a, an event that affected everything that was alive. And so God is saying, look, my promise holds. Whether it's with people or with animals, I'm not going to flood this whole earth again. And what you see there is that God is thinking about the whole of creation. God thinks about how the whole thing relates. You know, he doesn't just say, hey, Noah, get on the boat, and I'll recreate animals afterwards. He says, hey, Noah, bring those animals on that I'm sending to you, and you've got to take care of them, and you've got to make sure they get off the boat. And that's what they had to do, you know, because God was concerned about the whole picture. So, yeah, when we talk about 116, I thought about trying to call it the, like, the covenant with everything, but that doesn't make any sense, and that just sounds weird. So we're still calling it the Noahic covenant, but realize, those of you in 116, that it is a covenant with more than just Noah. 
All right, so we saw that God created nature. God brings about, or nature brings about God's glory. God sustains and cares for nature. I'm going to look at letter D here, or number four, if you're taking notes, maybe you're doing Roman numeral four, I don't know. What is God's relationship with nature? It brings God joy. It brings God joy. That is the fourth point. So, obvious place you could go for this, Genesis 1, right? God saw all that he had made, and it was, it was good. He was pleased with it. He was so pleased with it, he's like, oh, you know, take a rest on the seventh day. I'm good to go. I like this place. You know, I like what I made. He's, he's very, um, I'm not trying to make it sound like he's prideful or something, but God made these things for his glory, and he enjoys them. But I'll take you somewhere else that maybe is not so familiar um, as we're thinking through this. We're going to go to Job. We're going to look at Job chapter 40. And um, the whole, uh, some context here for the whole end of Job. Um, you guys know the story of Job, I'm, I'm assuming, um, that Job has all these things happen to him, and his wife says, curse God and die, and um, his friends aren't much help either. They're saying, well, the problem is that you're the biggest sinner that's ever existed, and you need to repent, and God's punishing you because you're so wicked. And Job's saying, look, I don't, think I'm that wicked. Like, I don't really feel like I deserve what's going on. And you see that some of Job's pride gets exposed in it, but, you know, but ultimately we find out that God was, God was not punishing Job, right? This was not an act of punishment. But Job says, this is where the pride comes in. He's like, hey, I deserve an answer. I want to know why God is doing this to me. God needs to come and talk to me. And so God says, fine, I'm going to come talk to you. And God gives him an answer. And it's not the answer Job is expecting. Um, God spends several chapters talking about hey, you know what? I laid the foundations of the earth. Do you know that? Can you do that? Hey, I can make it snow anytime I want. I can make it rain. I make thunderstorms. Can you do that? I made lions. I made antelope. I made goats. He talks about all these things, and he's like, can you do that? No. You know? And God's point being, you don't, no one can say, I deserve an answer from God because I am God. You know, I can, I do as I will. And that's, you know, I'm making that a little harsh. Um, I think that he is doing it in a loving way. But um, he is correcting Job. And as you get to Job chapter 40, he, he ends it with two different animals. Um, and we're going to look at one of them called the behemoth. Um, in Job 40, it says, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And if you skip down to verse, verse 15 in chapter 40 of Job, Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down in the covert of the reeds and the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? You might be like, I didn't see anything about God having joy there. Um, well, first of all, I want to point out, he does say that this is the first of the works of God. He's like, this is my, my top-notch thing. Okay, And the reason I'm pointing this out is God is basically bragging about something he made. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not saying God is sinning. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't go tell Todd that Matt was spreading heresy. Um, what I'm saying is that 
God is pointing out to Job, look at this thing that I made. This thing is incredible. It's amazing. It's huge. It has bones like bronze. He's the first among my creation. If a river rages against him, he doesn't even care. He's just like, I'm a big animal. I do what I want. And God says, I can approach him with the sword. I'm the one that made him. I'm the one that controls him. And we don't know what the behemoth is. And I think actually that's going to come up at some point in the creation symposium. So I'll save that for later. But the point is that here God is talking about his creation and saying, this is amazing. And he's pointing out to Job, this is incredible. This is beyond something that you can even comprehend fully. And yet I made that. And he's chief among my creation. Basically God's saying, I think it's pretty cool. I think you should appreciate that because that should humble you to recognize that such an incredibly huge animal exists and does what it wants and that there is a God that made that. That should humble you. So what is God's relationship with nature? Point one, God created it. Point two, it brings God glory. Point three, he sustains and cares for it. Point four, it brings God joy. And point five, he will redeem it. And you might be like, what? Are bunnies getting saved? No, bunnies are not getting saved. Your bunnies are doomed, kids. Sorry. Don't worry. The kids aren't in here. The kids aren't in here. It's okay. They're not going to listen to the sermon later. Don't be worried. It's fine. All right. All right. No, I like rabbits. Actually, Alaric kept trying to tell me about rabbits yesterday when we were reading a book. He's like, Rab- or bunny rabbit. No, that's a horse. He's still got some learning to do. But yeah, God is going to redeem nature. What do I mean by that? Let's look at Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we are going to be looking at verses 19 through 22. I'm going to need to give you some context again. I don't just want to pull a passage out without context. Paul has just gone through, explained the gospel pretty clearly. About as clearly as anyone could do it. He talks about life after salvation, what that looks like, the battle with the flesh. He talks about that we'll be delivered from bondage, right? So he's just expressed in chapter 7 how frustrating it is to be a Christian and to still have to deal with the flesh, to have this struggle with sin, right? And then in chapter 8, he talks about, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rejoicing about it because in chapter 7, he had just, in chapter 7? Yeah, in chapter 7, he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? So he's, he's talking about, man, it's so frustrating. Like, I just want to be, I want to be free from this. I want to be free from the, the sin that's around me, right? And then he talks about that deliverance that's in chapter 8. So we're going to look at that. But before he talks about the deliverance of people, the fact that we're going to get a new body, that we're going to be freed from the presence of sin, we'll be in heaven with God, isn't that great? Look what he says, verse 20 of chapter 8. Actually, we'll start in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And just in case you were thinking about, he's just talking about humans, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. 
For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So Paul talks about that we will be redeemed, right? We have been redeemed if we're believers. We've been rescued from um, the domain of sin, the kingdom of sin, if you want to think about it that way. We've been um, transformed. We've been given Christ's righteousness. We've been rescued from the wrath of God. But also, he says, just like we're going to be rescued one day from this present life, and we're going to be given new bodies, and we're going to be in heaven, so will the creation. He says the creation was subjected. When was it subjected? Well, the curse. So he's talking about here. He's talking about the fact that creation, God created it, it was good, he was pleased with it, and then when man sinned, God puts a curse on all of creation. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 3. So Paul's referencing that here, and then he says, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The creation is longing eagerly to be redeemed. What does that mean? It means that God would come and transform everything. He would redeem everything, reconcile everything. How do we know that's going to happen? Read Revelation. That's the whole idea, right? He creates a new heavens and a new earth. He doesn't just make new people. He creates all that stuff again. And you might say, why did he make all that stuff again? Do we really need mountains and, I don't know, plants? I'm assuming there's plants. Well, there's a tree of life. We know that. You know, do we really need those things in heaven? Well, maybe you're missing the point. It's not about what we need. It's about what God wants. It's about what God desires. about what God wants for him, for what he wants to express his glory. And that's what he's chosen to do. And that's what is going to happen. So we've looked at what is God's relationship with nature. Now we've got to look at what is our relationship with nature. If we're going to do a correct theology of nature, a theocentric view of nature, we need to understand what is our relationship with nature. Okay, well, the first thing we need to recognize, point one under that, we were created by God along with the rest of nature. You can read that in Genesis 1, read that in Genesis 2. I'll repeat that again. We were created by God along with the rest of nature. And you might say, well, yeah, that's obvious. I know I did not evolve from lower life. I know that God made me um, as a human. God created the humankind. It reproduced. But that's actually a really big deal when you think about it. Not just the fact that God would make us and that that's a reason to be thankful to God, but that God made us along with everything else. God made us in a context where we are dependent upon these other things. We have to eat food that grows or moves. You know, I guess they grow too. We have to drink water. We have to destroy things to build shelters. That's how we have to exist. And God made it that way. Why? Well, I would suggest to you because it keeps us humble. God does not need anything. God exists. He could exist just with himself, and he did before he created everything. That's sufficient for God. But you know what? We need food. We need water. We need shelter. But when you recognize that, that the God who made all those things also made you and made you dependent upon them, that's going to keep you humble, and that's going to keep you worshiping God. I don't think it's any surprise that you don't see cultures naturally arise atheistic, you know? When you look at cultures around the world, as they appeared, they believed in some kind of God, some kind of spirit, some kind of force. They believed in something because they recognized 
that these things were giving glory to something else. Something made them. Something controls them. They got that. It's only when you remove yourself from all that stuff and you think you've got it all together that you can start thinking, oh yeah, God probably doesn't exist. I figured it out. I know what's up. But when you recognize that if the rain doesn't come this year, you don't eat, you know there's a God. Now, is that like some kind of utilitarianism? Maybe, but I think the idea is that you recognize that there's someone that controls the rain. There's someone that knows what's going on. So if we were created by God along with the rest of nature, we need to think about it in that context. Some of you have heard of Albert Schweitzer. Um, he's not a theologian. No, don't read Albert Schweitzer. I'm using him as a negative example. But Schaefer references him and says, Albert Schweitzer related himself to the hippopotamus, not because he was really huge or something. He related himself to the hippopotamus coming through the bush because Schweitzer had no sufficient relationship upward. So Schweitzer is kind of saying like, oh yeah, you know, we're just like a hippo. There's really no difference. Like we're, we're in nature, we're evolved out of it, we're part of it, you know. And, um, and he was kind of going pantheistically um, towards the end there. But Schaefer says he relates himself to the hippo because he has no sufficient relation upward. This is wrong. Man is made in the image of God who is personal. Thus, man has two relationships, upward and downward. Okay? We are unique among the rest of creation in that we can have a special relationship with God. God created us in his image, and the things we see around us, you know, the rocks can't be like, oh, man, I sinned again. You know, like, I need, I need to repent. Um, you know, the, the lions aren't concerned about murder, right? Um, we are the ones that are having these thoughts. We are the ones that God made in his image that we would communicate with him. And originally, remember, when we were created, we did regularly. Adam and Eve were talking with him in the garden. But sin interferes there. Sin's what corrupted our minds, made it depraved. And the problem is people look at nature and they rightfully recognize, hey, we're a part of this. You know what? Your lungs work the same way as any other mammal. Your ears are like other mammals' ears. You have fur, although we call it hair, you know? Um, your limb girdles, according to evolutionists, were evolved in the Carboniferous, or Devonian, actually, with um, amphibians, you know? Like, you share some of the same features with lots of animals. Lots of animals have bones. Lots of animals have eyes. But we're not animals. We're not like those other animals. So there's something different about humans, okay? That doesn't mean lord it over them. Don't go and mock the frogs and be like, ha-ha, you know? I have a relationship with God, you don't. But recognize that you are like a frog in some ways. You are created. You are fragile. You are dependent upon things. And God wants us to look at those animals and recognize that. Recognize that you too will have an end. You will return to the dust, right? And there are things we can learn there. We need to recognize that we are a part of that, but we also have an upward relationship that the rest of nature does not have. We have a relationship that's possible with God. So as we're thinking about what is our relationship with nature, it's helpful to think about what was man's first relationship with nature. So our second point was that Adam's original role was to take care of the creation. So we were created by God along with the rest of nature. Number two, Adam's original role was to take care of the creation. So you can read that, Genesis um, chapter 2. You read it in chapter 3 a little bit too. And God explains, you know, first Adam has to name the animals. And then he explains in, um, also in chapter 1. We'll read a really quick snippet for you. 
Um, he says in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man was supposed to rule over the earth. There's a sense in which man was God's mediator to the rest of creation. Just like when Moses talks about, I am like, um, wait, I want to make sure I get this right. You know, Moses was God's prophet. But he would say, like, I am like God, and Aaron is like my prophet to you. Um, in the same way, we, there's a sense in which we were kind of like God's mediators on earth. The creation's looking to us as its caretaker, as a sense it's God. But I want to be really careful how we say that. So has this role changed? Well, sure. In some ways, it's definitely changed, right? The old creation wasn't trying to kill us. This one is. This one's actively trying to kill us. Don't live in Australia. Have you seen? Like, it's like nine out of the 10 deadliest snakes live in Australia. And then if you leave the land, you have to run into tons of sharks. There's box jellyfish, which are killing people out there. It's just, it's crazy. But that's not how God made things, right? God made things that they would work in harmony, that things were, um, they were good. They were not hurting people. So it's definitely changed. You know, you read about in Genesis 9 after the flood, he talks about that he's going to put the fear of man in the animals, that they, they avoid people. Um, and he gives people at that point the right to kill and eat animals, um, although they could kill them before, but they couldn't eat them. So the role has changed. And, you know, some people look at this and they say, well, the, you know, the world is now Satan's. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, right? Um, he's in control of things in here. God gives him the opportunity to, um, to do certain things, to control certain things. Um, and so they say, well, we have no role in that anymore. We are no longer in any way responsible for nature. Um, well, I don't know. That doesn't quite make sense. You know, it sounds like we're kind of trying to get off the hook. Because the issue is, whenever God gives us something, we are stewards of that thing. We talked about that a little bit ago. You know, when God gives you money, you're responsible to use that money wisely and to use it in a way that glorifies God. God gives you children. You're responsible to raise those children in a God-glorifying way. When God gives you a job, you're responsible to glorify God in your job. It should be the same with the things that are around us. If God gives you land that has trees, you should use it in a way that glorifies him. If God gives you animals to take care of, you should use them in a way that glorifies him. Are there wrong ways to use those things? Yes, I think we could all agree on that. You know, are there ways that we could use those things to not glorify God? Absolutely. We could use them selfishly. We could misuse those things. We could abuse those things, just like anything else. So we certainly do have a responsibility there as stewards of what God has provided for us. So what does this mean? I'm going to kind of go into a little bit of an application section now. Well, we know as humans that, that God asks us to share in his concerns. We need to be concerned for the people of God because God is concerned for the people of God, right? The church. We need to be concerned for the lost because God is concerned for the lost. We need to be concerned about humans as a whole, um, human civilization, the culture, the government, because God is concerned about those things and he talks about those things. He talks about our responsibilities in those things. Well, I think in the same way, we do actually need to be concerned about how we interact with nature. Um, and don't worry, I'm not going to get all tree hugger on you. You don't have to worry about that. This isn't the direction I'm going. The direction I am going is saying, if God made these things, then we have a responsibility in the way we act around them. If somebody hand makes you a gift, right? 
you're not going to go throw that in the trash, hopefully. Um, because that'd be really rude, right? Um, if somebody buys you a car, right, they don't want to see you next week with, like, a huge, you know, dents all over the place and trash inside the car. Um, it's this idea of being a steward, right? So I think we need to respect God's creation as his handiwork. I think that's what you see in the Psalms. I think that's what you see in Job. These people are recognizing that God is the creator of these things, and thus we should worship him. You know, I, I like to point this out to a lot of people. I think it's a fun animal fact. Um, did you know there are 3,023 currently named species of catfish? That's just catfish. You might think there's one type of catfish. No, there are 3,000 types of catfish, okay? That means that one out of every 20 living vertebrate animals is a species of catfish. That's ridiculous. Like, you should, you should be bothered by that. What are they doing? Why are there so many catfish? And you know what? Jewish people couldn't even eat catfish because they didn't have scales. So what are all these catfish doing? We're not eating them. Now we eat them. Some people like to noodle for them and stuff, lose their fingers, you know? Um, and so you could make the argument, sure, God made the catfish for us to eat. You know, like he knew one day that we would need to eat catfish, and so he made them. But why are there 3,000 types of them? Like, wouldn't you only need one type of catfish? Maybe, I don't know, seven of the different continents. Although no one's living in Antarctica, and catfish aren't there either. Um, you know, but maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe God is demonstrating his glory by having a great diversity of animals that, to us, seem to have no significance. But think about it. Catfish play tons of roles in their environment. There are catfish that eat bugs. There are catfish that eat fish. There are catfish that eat bark. Like they actually eat bark off of trees, which is weird. Um, there are catfish that eat plants, and they're providing food for other animals. And the thing is, just in their variety alone, they're expressing the glory of God. They're expressing his creativity, his wisdom, his intellect. And that's incredible. I don't think I could sit down and come up with 3,000 different types of catfish. They'd start looking the same at some point, right? <laughs> You know, like I just start, like I put a streak on this one and then like another one on that one. But no, like they're, they're very different animals and it's very amazing. And we should look at that and respect God as a result of that. And this is where I'm going to, where I'm going to go. And I hope I don't step on your toes. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to offend you. Um, but we do need to be able to coexist. Um, now I hate that bumper sticker. It's not what I'm talking about. It's so stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's just offensive, you know, to people that are religious. But, you know, we must remember that God also told at least all the birds and all the marine creatures to be fruitful and increase in number. He told that to people, and he told that to the birds and the fish. He says, hey, you got to multiply and increase in number. Well, we got to keep that in mind. If God gave them a command, and they're trying to fill it, you know, fulfill it, are we contributing or not contributing to that? Now, obviously, we need to eat fish. I think that's important. I like Red Lobster. I used to. They changed their prices. It's bad. <laughs> but, you know, we eat birds, too. Birds are important. But could we do something that could detrimentally affect those animals? Sure. Of course we could. We've done that already. I don't know if you've ever looked at the fishery reports for the North Atlantic. It's ridiculous. You know, you used to catch cod there. Huge, huge cod. If you look at the pictures back in the day, um, early 1900s and stuff, like they have like the biggest cod of the year, and they're like ridiculously huge. Now the cod are like that big. It's just nothing. Um, and the reason is because it's been overfished. Um, 
you know, we had the problem with whales, actually. Um, there are several species of whales we almost totally drove to extinction, which is ridiculous because those things are huge. Like, how do you even do that? We did it. We were close. Um, you know, but we didn't, which is good. And I'm not saying, you know, we should go save the whales. I'm not telling you to go sign up for um, Greenpeace and go push them back in the ocean, you know. What I am saying is that we need to recognize that destruction of creation removes from man a cause for giving honor to God. Every species, every ecosystem reveals the wisdom of God and thus exerts a powerful doxological influence. Quoting this guy named Michael A. Bullmore, he wrote a paper called The Four Most Important Biblical Passages for a Christian Environmentalism um, in Trinity Journal. And uh, I don't know the guy personally, so I can't vouch for him. Don't go read his stuff. Um, you know, I want to be careful. But um, I think that his point is something that we need to consider. That when we look at nature, that's reflecting the glory of God. When we distort or damage it, that's going to make it harder for people to see God's handiwork. Um, like I said earlier, where do atheist cultures exist? Where do they come about? They come about in industrialized urban settings. Why? Because your water comes out of a faucet, your meat comes from the store, you have air conditioning, you have a house, you know, you drive a car. And guess what? Man did all those things. Man figured out how to do indoor plumbing. Man figured out how to, you know, create AC. Well, those are good things. But it's easy when that's all you know to forget that God's there because you don't see his handiwork. Now, you could. I'm not saying, like, get out of the office and you need to go live as a bum somewhere, you know, on the beach. Because um, I know some of you are hoping I'm going to say that. I'm not, you know, because you want to get out of responsibility. No. In fact, I'm suggesting we need more responsibility because... Those things reflect God's glory. That's what we see in scripture. And so we should be subjecting ourselves to checking those things out, I think, as human beings. I think we should take the time to recognize God's glory in those things and praise him as a result of that. That's what you see in the Psalms, as I pointed out. And the issue becomes, you know, if we are so consumed with doing our own thing are we missing out on an opportunity to praise God and glorify him and in pointing non-believers to glorify him? Let me give you an example. Um, I always harp on people for this, and it's not a sin issue, so I don't think it is. But, you know, and maybe I'm being legalistic with it, but it always used to bother me when I was walking around campus and everybody has their iPod on and everybody has their earphones in. And like, they could get hit by a bus. Like, they don't know what's going on, you know? Like, they're just listening to music. And they, they say, yeah, I'm listening to Christian music. But it's like, I mean, you're missing out on what's happening around you. You're, you're, you're super isolating yourselves. And I'm not saying don't ever listen to music by yourself. I like listening to music by myself. There's nothing wrong with that. The point is, don't over-isolate yourself. Don't isolate yourself in such a way that you can no longer see God's handiwork around you. Be in such a place that you can see how God is working in people's lives through salvation, through sanctification, through growth, but also be in a place where you can see God's handiwork in nature because you're going to be able to praise him. I mean, how many of you like to watch the sunrise, like to watch the sunset? You like it when a rainbow happens or a double rainbow, you know? Um, you like to go to the zoo. You like to see these things. Why? Because they are beautiful. They reflect God's glory. And so if we are... You know, two points kind of here if you want to think about it this way in terms of what not to do. You know, if we are 
removing ourselves from it totally, it's going to be easy to slip into this mindset of, I'm what matters. It's easier to get selfish. I'm not saying if you don't spend an hour in nature every day, then you're a bad Christian. What I'm saying is just realize it's really easy to get the mindset of, I'm what matters, when you don't think about the other stuff around you. Number two, if God really made these things, as we believe he did, if God sustains these things, as we believe he does, if God designed these things, made them beautiful, as we believe he did, if he cares for them, as we believe he does, that places responsibility on us because we have to be wise and good stewards of what's around us. And like I said, don't go join Greenpeace necessarily. Don't sign up for the World Wildlife Fund. Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is be mindful of that. And we need to recognize that humans can cause damage and lack of beauty. And we can misuse what God has given us. We know we can because we do it with money. We do it with people. We can certainly do it with nature. So think about that. Think about your interaction with it and how you can best glorify God in your interactions with all of creation, including human beings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us concerning what you have made. And it's easy sometimes for us to just kind of get this mindset that we're the boss and we're the, we run the show. And Lord, keep us humble. Keep reminding us that we are dependent upon you, that just like the animals around us, we need your sustaining hand in our lives for our food, for our water, but also for our sanctification, for our growth. And Lord, help us to look at things around us with an appreciation for your glory, to be like Moses and desire earnestly to see your glory, to want to know you better, and Father, we know that we don't need mystical experiences to know you. We don't need um, writing in the sky. We don't need um, a personal visit by you because we have your word. We have the scriptures. We turn to those for our understanding of you. And we thank you for your special revelation to us. But at the same time, we also thank you for the general revelation that you have around us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to praise you because of what we see. And help us to not take that for granted. Help us to earnestly desire to glorify you in the way we interact with the things you have made, whether they are inanimate or animate. Help us to do it in such a way that it brings you glory, that it points the non-believer to you, that it helps the believer understand our care because of your care. And let that be reflected in the way we treat one another. And so I pray, amen.